0: It's the Kevin Power Podcast Hour We're gonna hang out and talk about sports It's the Kevin Power Podcast Hour You can listen at home in your favorite shorts It's the Kevin Power Podcast Hour Behind the scenes on your favorite teams It's the Kevin Power Podcast Hour Talking about the games and everything in between This is not a representation that the show will be one hour long Hello and welcome to the Kevin Power Podcast Hour. Today I'm pleased to have with me the play-by-play announcer for the NBA and TNT, Westwood One's lead announcer for Monday Night Football, and CBS College Basketball and NFL broadcaster Kevin Harlan. Good to be on with you, Kev. Great to visit. Look forward to it. So you had incredible uh, last week with the Super Bowl and then the LeBron game. Could you just... Kind of take me through your prep for the Super Bowl, and maybe the day of, and, and when you saw the tide turning? Well, um, you know, the Super Bowl is like a season-long prep, and you never know what the final two teams will be, but you're in the back of your mind, beginning to make sure that
1: you've got some things kind of locked down, uh, no knowledgeable uh, bits of information about about the teams that are kind of funneling into the final four, certainly the final, you know, eight teams that, that, uh, that make it to divisional weekend. And as it turned out, uh, you know, I had done a couple of Patriot games, done a couple of Atlanta Falcon games, and still I had a pretty good general knowledge of both teams going into the into Super Bowl 51, into Houston. And uh, it was really uh, just a process over the two weeks from the end of the
2: championship uh, games on that Sunday to the uh, game Sunday night in Houston just
1: making sure that I had the, the, the right rosters the right statistics and kind of the, the headline information you know we have so many people on our broadcast Kevin that you've got to be uh, got to be a little cautious that you don't overload I mean the thing is the game people have heard all the stories the two weeks leading up to the game, they know all the personalities, and they've got a pretty good feel of, you know, what the, what the major components are to the game and for each team, so I think really my, my number one goal is just to make sure that I'm as clear and concise with my call, and so that's really what I concentrated on. Certainly I knew the historical ramifications of the Patriots, I knew what kind of season Matt Ryan had had for Atlanta was familiar with uh, both coaches and on and on, but I think for me to, to start to, to rattle off all these different bits of information that I had probably would have clogged up the, the process of just calling a, a fluid, clean, understandable game, and so that was my main concern. And so I, I went in with very little on my noteboard, a lot of things in my head, but a very clear path, I think, to call in that game and was ready for that. And then the same was true the very next night up in Washington after the Super Bowl on Sunday night, flew early in the morning to Washington on Monday morning and and was ready for that game. I had seen the, the Wizards a couple times already, certainly knew the Cleveland story. And that game, you just don't know sometimes what you're going to get in the middle of a season in the NBA. And that turned out to be one of those gems that, you hope for, you don't see very often, but when you get them, you're so grateful. So I was just enthralled with, with everything about that basketball game the day after the Super Bowl. And with the Super Bowl being as good as it was, I felt it was going to be hard to, to have anything that Monday match up to even close to what I had seen just 24 hours earlier. But as it turned out, the, the NBA game was absolutely brilliant and Incredibly fun and close and so I got very lucky in 24 hours. I saw two very good Competitive games and uh,
0: felt very lucky to be in that in that broadcast position at both uh, both locations Was that the most exciting? 48 hours in your sporting career possibly well, it was it was
1: close You know, certainly I've I've done a lot of Super Bowls. That was my eighth and feel very lucky and never take any of that for granted because it's such a um, it is such a, a goal, I think, of, of most broadcasters to do as, as big a game as they can possibly work their way up to do. So, in my profession, that that's about as big as it gets. So, uh, you know, even if it hadn't been as close, it still would have been just as much a thrill. We had the added input that it went to overtime, and it was, you know, kind of a walk-off score that that won it for the Patriots and. That made it terrific. And then, you know, the shot-making in the the NBA game was something that you see on occasion, usually in the postseason, not much in the middle of the regular year. So, uh, you know, back-to-back within a very short time frame. Uh, It would be hard, I think, to say that I've called two more exciting games in such a short time and uh, and in different sports, too. So that made it very, very
2: fun.
0: Yeah, those are some uh, great calls. Was there was there a moment in the uh, in the game though that you really felt the tide turning in the Super Bowl? Was there a specific oh, time you know, that you I, personally I, I guess from a broadcast standpoint, even when it was 28 to 3,
1: we you know, we basically make sure that we don't give up on a game. That we we want to make sure that even though it was a 25-point game that we were not lax in our calls and aloof with our comments and, and not focused in, uh, the, the enormity of the broadcast, the number, we had over 800 stations domestically and then the BBC overseas and, and then American Armed Forces Radio, you know, we had such a big audience that to sit there and not treat that game with the kind of respect it deserves would not have been right. So we were, we were very much as if it was a, a three point game as opposed to a 25 point game. And, We stayed right with it so that when we started to see bit by bit the Patriots kind of chisel their way back into it, we all kind of felt like, uh, aren't you glad that we stuck with the game even when it was looking like a blowout? And I think that served our entire broadcast well to be able to just uh, not miss a beat when things began to get tight and when the game got close and eventually was tied and then it, it swung so differently with 31 unanswered New England points we, we, uh, we try to do that with every broadcast you't never want to give up on them and uh, like I said I don't know if there was really one play that sing- singled that, that that signaled that there was a, a change or or whatever but Mike Holmgren was on that broadcast and uh, the former Super Bowl coach at Green Bay and assistant with San Francisco and certainly up in, up in Seattle he went to a Super Bowl he uh, he said you know momentum once you know it's grabbed by a team, it's almost impossible to wrangle it away. And New England, you could just see, was feeling much better about itself when they were making big plays defensively and getting scores. Once they got the ball back in Brady's hands, and I think all that kind of led us as a mounting, mounting, uh, you know, drive that, that they were getting back into it. But it happened so fast, all kind of at a quarter and a half, that it was hard to process as it was going on. And you just kind of, as a broadcast, you just try to do the best you can, keeping all the facts in front of you and making sure you're very organized and not getting, again, stuck in the minutia of small detail, but sticking with the main themes that are going on as the game is developing, and in this case, uh, turned so significantly from one way to the other.
0: Uh, to talk about a little uh another Super Bowl you did, you did Super Bowl forty-seven when uh, the famous power outage. What was that like? Well, you know, you didn't know what was really going on
1: at that time. As I recall, there was a, still a, a great deal of, I think, uh, fear may not be the right word, but uh, uneasiness about uh, perhaps a uh, an outside attack. On the game, uh, something uh, nefarious, perhaps, happening. It was. It was uh, the, the the big
2: events like that just kind of opened the doors for anybody or any organization to
1: to cash in on something kind of out of the ordinary. And when the lights went out, we knew that was out of the ordinary. And shortly after the lights went out, and about 40 to 50 percent of them completely shut down. Uh, all these people began running onto the field, and later we learned that they were all security people, many in, in, in regular clothes and civilian clothes that, you know, come pouring out of the stands, off the sideline and onto the field, and with directions to the players and the coaches on what to do. And once they had figured out that it was nothing but a, um, a mechanical, a technical issue with the power grid, you know, I think everyone rushed it easy. On our side, we again didn't know, and everything went dead power wise in the broadcast booth, except our very alert executive producer, who's done about 28 of these Super Bowls, had landlines, telephone landlines that were in the booth as a backup to the backup to the backup. And sure enough, we needed them. So he had a couple phones and literally dialed New York from the Superdome in New Orleans and patched my phone that he handed me and the other phone that he handed Boomer Esiason. Um, They patched those
2: two lines into the
1: main components of our broadcast center in New York. And uh, even though we were on separate lines, and uh, we were right in across from each other so we were talking face to face as if we were on a broadcast um and they mixed all that well in new york and for i guess it was a half hour i'm not certain on the exact amount of time but it was over 20 minutes I you know we had no power and they were you know scrambling everybody was to get it back that uh we were able to conduct the broadcast and report what we were seeing and that's what a reporter does a reporter you know, says what he or she is seeing at that time. And so that was, that was very natural. You know, the lights it out, security was on the field, the teams remained uh, with this part of the game, on and on and on. And uh, then the power came back up. They located the issue. It was nothing, uh, you know, bad. Uh, that it, it was just a technical uh, power grid failure that had been rectified and fixed and you're off and running again. So, um, you know, you've always, a live sporting event is filled with moments like that, and you're kind of conditioned when you're doing a live broadcast to expect the unexpected, and that's kind of what, I guess, our mindset is every time we go into a, a live sporting broadcast.
0: Obviously, that was a different type of nervousness, but uh, uh, how do you, how, do you ever feel nerves out there, and what do you do if you do feel them? You know, like, a, a situation like that that's completely out of the ordinary for you, you know? Well, you, you, yeah, you don't, you're not nervous. The, the nice thing was is that we were, you know, well into the broadcast
1: when the power went out, and so we were kind of in a rhythm anyway of being very much off the cuff and ad-libbing and and broadcasting, so it just kind of fell right in the line of what was going on, and... Uh, you know, it is, it is very comforting to know that you look around our Westwood One broadcast booth, and like I said, our executive producer, our dinner office has done 28 of them. Um, people in that booth, we had many, uh, had done multiple, multiple double-digit Super Bowls.
2: So they had seen a lot, done a lot, and were all accomplished in their
1: own right, whether they were producers or, or people on the technical side. So no one really blank you just kind of you just kind of continue on and that is
0: kind of part of the territory that you traverse when you're you're doing a live broadcast. So you really never felt nerves before or during a broadcast? Well no I, 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 you know sometimes before a real big game and I know our audience
1: is big like a Super Bowl or a regional final or a big NFL TV broadcast, I think you feel, you know, I, I I think the key is to remain calm. Is is I, there's there's always that excitement in your stomach, certainly, and your sensory of you know hearing and seeing and all that is is in a very alert mode. Um, but I wouldn't say that I would get nervous. In fact, I try to I try to be just the exact opposite. Some like to work up the nerves, and that serves as a trigger mechanism or a key for them to really lock in. For me, it's kind of the opposite. I, I would prepare uh, to try to relax, like during the anthem, uh, moments before the broadcast. i take a lot of big, deep breaths and, uh, and try to relax because I think that for me individually, you know, it, it settles me down. It keeps my mind focused and sharp. Uh, I think it helps my voice stay calm and resonant. And if I get too worked up, too hyped up, I think you're prone to talk too fast, make mistakes, think before you talk, a higher voice because your vocal cords are more tense. I think it's best when you're relaxed and the the, the thoughts flow freely. And, And I guess that's how I've kind of tried to condition myself. But I would say it's more excitement and just uh, you know hoping that I do a good job, that I'm on my game. And like anything else, some days you've got it and some days you don't. And if you don't, you got to work to get it during that broadcast, which is a chore. And other broadcasts, it comes so easy you could sit backwards if you had to and still be fine. So I, uh, I guess I kind of feel like I, I, I try to stay away from the nerves, but I'm always, that excitement is always there. The butterflies are whatever you want to call it, but
0: I, I do try to make sure that I am very relaxed before I, I take the air. Well, you definitely uh, make the audience feel excited, and you're always clear with your words while being excited, which is great.
1: Well, I, you know, it's, it's uh, people have different broadcast styles, and mine has always, I guess, been more of a high-intensity, or passionate, perhaps. Others are not like that. For instance, I think it, re- it revolves around the sport. In baseball, there is so much time where there's nothing going on. I think you're kind of sitting back in a chair, your legs are crossed. I'm just using an analogy. And, and and you're relaxed and you're just having a conversation. I think in football, it's like a march where, you know, it's pretty intense all the time. The hitting, the violence, the ruggedness, the toughness of the game, I think always needs to be portrayed if you're on radio or TV and that takes a different kind of voice maybe I don't think you could put you know a very relaxed kind of nonchalant broadcast broadcaster on on a football game I don't think it would fit and then basketball is kind of high energy has that conversational tone to it but you know you're at the same time you're kind of sitting at the edge of your seat, waiting for an explosion. You just don't know when it's going to come. And that's kind of the, that's kind of the thing with basketball that when you get in a rhythm, um, it just kind of fits that sport. It really has a beat, has a rhythm to it, which to me makes it very easy. Football is like a march, as I said, so you're talking for 20 seconds and your analyst is talking for 20 seconds that you're talking. So it's one step that, you know, you're marching, and there's a, there's a, there's a rhythm and a beat to that, but it is hard sometimes if you've laid silent for 20 seconds or so, you know, every minute to then kind of rev back up again and get back in that rhythmic mindset, which, you know, football certainly dictates. So they're all different. Um, and, uh, and all challenging. And that's, that's the great thing about this business. There's no one that's at the perfect broadcast and we're all fighting for that. And, uh, I don't think there'll ever be a perfect broadcast. And that's the challenge to just strive for, strive
2: for perfection.
0: If you could take the money and the fame out of, uh, out of TV, would you rather do TV or radio?
1: challenges i never envisioned i never envisioned myself kevin in in tv radio was always my first love and um i guess i just always from the time that i kind of got into broadcasting when i was 12 13 years old always kind of envisioned myself doing you know national hoping dreaming that i would do national radio play-by-play of big sporting events that that was my goal and why I wanted to get on. And that's what I really dreamt of. And, um, the TV thing just kind of happened. It just, it just, I just kind of, I was at a time, luckily for me, when, you know, cable was, was, uh, becoming, uh, more common. There were more, posi- more broadcast positions, teams were televising more games. And, uh, you know, right now, you know, every game is on TV. Every game is on the Internet, which is a TV broadcast, or it's on, on over-the-air TV or on cable TV. And so it's funny when probably someone like me says that, oh, not every game was on TV. You know, there are a lot of times when it was just on radio. Well, that doesn't happen anymore. Every game is on television now, so so it would seem weird. So that means there's a lot of jobs out there, and that's kind of the time that I fell into television. Uh, With the beginning of this move, and so it's very fortuitous, very lucky, very, very lucky for me that the timing kind of fit when I was beginning to kind of hit my stride in the business. And like I said, TV just kind of happened by various circumstances. And but I do love radio. I do think that radio is the biggest challenge. I think it's the purest form of broadcasting because. It's all on you. It's all voice and inflection and pacing and reporting and word skill. It's everything. Whereas in television, the picture says so much, you don't have to say that much. But there is an art to, you know, to accenting the picture and and, uh, and and really making it even more than just a, a, a play that you watch on TV that you put some meaning in the back of it or... Play off something your analyst has said. It's a very analyst-driven uh, medium. TV is And so, but the analyst is really the boss and really the top dog in that. They've also got graphics and replays and all those things. And play-by-play guy really, you know, becomes you know uh, less important. Not not that he isn't important, but perhaps less important because you can see it. Because in radio, it's a blank canvas, and the radio play-by-play announcer is responsible for every thing that's on that blank
2: canvas. You know, the mood, uh, the picture with his words. You know, trying to trigger things in your imagination that you can see it in your mind's eye,
1: and that—that uh, that to me is a—that's a real challenge.
2: And, and when you do it, and when you occasionally do it right, it's—it uh, sure is satisfying.
0: I read that your father um, was definitely ahead of his time in terms of saying print was not the way to go and TV and radio was the future. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. But your daughter is currently she's a uh, reporter as well. Do you advise her to, to do more of the social media, more of the YouTube, more of the non-traditional types of, of mediums because that's the future? Well...
1: I didn't want to get in the business at all. I just I think it's really? incredibly hard for anybody to get in it. Um, but doubly so for a woman, because it's just a whole set of circumstances that a man doesn't have to go through. So right off the bat, you're, you're kind of graded differently. And um, it's very difficult. Uh, she was incredibly lucky that she knew pretty early in her college uh, years She went to the University of Georgia, which was a great journalism school, but she knew in high school, then certainly when she got to college, what direction she wanted to go. And um, I I, tried to
2: serve as a sounding board for it and tried to guide her along the way, but she was really dedicated to it. And I told her, I said, said, you cannot get in this business,
1: you cannot get in this business unless it is all-consuming at a very young age. Because that's when you're going to make your mistakes when it's not going to matter, no one's going to hear, but you've got to learn so much. And the younger you learn, and the faster you start working on your voice and your, and your delivery and your on-air you know, persona, the better off you're going to be. The longer you wait, you know, the more traction you're going to have to get. And it's going to happen in smaller markets, and it's going to happen in less glamorous locales, and probably doing things you don't want to do. So she did take that advice, and she worked very hard, incredibly uh, diligent in, in how she pursued getting experience. So she did it the right way. And I tell college kids all the time that you've just got to be married to it in college. You don't have much of a social life, and uh, that really takes precedent. And I, when I was in school, the same was very, very true. I would miss class to go do a game. I would... Uh, be late for class, or maybe not able to study as much as I wanted to on a certain test because I was out covering a story and, and doing things directly related to my career. And you know, sometimes those sacrifices have to be made. But the end result, hopefully, if you've got it, and it's not guaranteed that even if you work that hard in college and you've got it, you'll, you'll get a you'll, you'll get a nice chance out of the blocks. And she did. She was still in college, and she was hired by Fox Sports to do uh, SEC
2: sideline uh, for football games. So she did. She was going to class, and then driving to the Atlanta airport, then flying to an
1: SEC game, and meeting with coaches on Friday, and then doing the game on Saturday, and then going back to the airport, and flying back into Atlanta, and then driving to Athens, and studying Sunday night, and getting to class on Monday morning. So she was still in college, and she was doing a job that, that a lot of women, I think, her age would have died for, and older probably would have died for. And that led to uh, her work with the Atlanta Hawks, which she was doing when she was still in college, uh, which is, again, I think, pretty unprecedented. And then she became the youngest full-time uh, ESPN female uh, to, to have a full time. She started doing college. Football two years ago when she was twenty one, so with the full schedule of, of college football games, so she's she's really been incredibly fortunate. That does not happen all the time, obviously, and we're uh, unbelievably proud, but know that it's a uh, it's an ongoing story. You can't rest on your laurels, and she knows it. And we talked about it quite a bit. That you're constantly out there proving yourself. And Trying to do the best job you possibly can do, and knowing as good as your last broadcast, and I think she's pretty dialed in with that philosophy. And knows that. as far as the social media, you know, I'm I'm not big on that. Uh, that generation of broadcaster is, so I I really don't know how to answer that if, if I would recommend it or not. She seems to think, and what I hear my bosses tell, you know, younger broadcasters is to get on there and do what you need to do to, you know, talk about the broadcast, talk about an interview you're doing, a bit of information you want to pass along, whatever it may be. And, um, you know, she's very good about that. So um, it's just that that's the new dimension that now is very much
0: apparent, I think, with the younger broadcasters coming into the business. Yeah, definitely. And hopefully, I mean, it's, it's tough to live up to your name. I mean, it makes it live even harder for her, I would assume, right? Because um, people think they might have gotten in that position because of you, even though she's been working her tail off to get it, right? Well, I, I would like to think that. I mean, I like to think that people would realize
1: that she's worked very, very hard to get what she is, and I know she is, and I, I tell at the end of the day, as long as you know you can look at yourself in the mirror, you know that you've worked hard and done all you can do, then then, uh, you know, you've got nothing to worry about. And people are going to think what they're going to think. Yeah. So I don't know that initially people really put two and two together, to be quite honest. I mean, there was a lot of first year and a half she was in the business. She would tell me that people did not know that we were related, which I liked. Gotcha. Uh, I, I've not called to get her a job at all. i never called to get her a job. Um, only thing I ever did was I, I took her on a college trip to the University of Georgia, and uh, we met with professors, much like you know any dad would do with their
2: their son or daughter, and find out if that school best fit what that student wanted to do. And uh, they didn't know who I was; I was just a dad. Uh, but I did I did say that that school that she chose, and a lot of good ones, you know,
1: had the broadcast bones and. And chops uh, and to do what she needed that school to do for her, and that was give her a good journalism education. They have a storyline of broadcasters that have gone there, but no, I've I've never, I've never made a call, I've never um, intervened. Uh, sometimes I'd like to when I get some story she tells me about maybe that straight producer or whatever that will give her a tough time. I said it's part of the territory. It's kind of earning your stripes. So she's. Her, her skin is thickening and toughening up. She understands the business
0: more and more every day, and I'm very proud of the way she's navigated it. Uh, I don't want to take too much of your time, but I do have a few more questions, if that's okay. Um, uh, you worked with the Timberwolves when they were um, just an expansion franchise. For how long did you work for them? Nine years? Nine years, I was there, yep. So like, I heard some interesting stories about when they were going through some of their, their, their tough times that... You, and your partner would come up with a word, and well, the, the beat writers would always, you know, the
1: games were so bad and they were they were like fifteen win seasons, seventeen win seasons. They were they were just very difficult to watch and certainly hard to broadcast. And and uh, the the media people, the the beat writers for the St. Paul Pioneer Press and the Minneapolis Star Tribune come up with the word that they wanted us to, wanted me to get in during the broadcast and, I mean, they weren't they weren't the run-of-the-mill words that would just kind of flow and roll right off your tongue. They were like complicated, hard words that you had to try to figure out a way to get them in a broadcast where they had some kind of meaning. What
0: was, and, what's um, an example? Like, what are some of the crazier ones?
1: Well, I can't, you know what, to be quite honest, you're asking me right now and I can't, they were so obtuse so oh, okay. strange that I can't even remember them. But they probably could because I think they had to go digging in a thesaurus or <laughs> a dictionary and look them up and figure out, you know, what it meant. And, you know, was there any possible way that I could link that word in, in that broadcast? So there were all little challenges like that that we that uh, that they put out there that were kind of fun to mess around with as we were struggling watching the team lose so many games.
0: I hear you. I hear you. Um, that must be tough during some of these games to really maintain that enthusiasm.
1: And, you, know, it's, um, you know, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. You know, you're, you're lucky to be there. And, you know, we had a game last night, for instance, that was not very good on TNT, and it was a 34-point game at one point, but there's, there's always something to talk about. And there's never a bad NBA game, I don't think. Uh, it's just maybe not the, the principles that we think are going to star, that are starring any more bench-like guys, little-known guys, so that's a challenge into educating the people that are watching, you know, who these players are and what their background is and why they fit or don't fit with that team. And, uh, you know, I was sitting next to Reggie Miller, for instance, last night. He's a Hall of
2: Famer. There's a lot for him to talk about talk about the league, so there's always something to talk about. There's always something to do.
1: And I guess I've always kind of felt like you just never want to give up in a broadcast, and I guess at a very early age in the business, somebody told me that, you know, these broadcasters
2: are on the air because advertisers are fitting, are you know, footing the bill. They're, they're paying to
1: have their product on that, on that broadcast. And, you know,
2: you don't want to, um, disrespect the broadcast so much because
1: in essence, you're kind of disrespecting, you know, the people that, uh, that are advertising on there, the companies, the products that are on your air. that. um, paying a lot of money to have that, you know, to have that, uh, to have that product on your, on your broadcast. And so there's a sense of making sure that you, you know, that you you never give up on a broadcast. It it doesn't last forever. There's a finite amount of time. The clock is running and and the people know the circumstances is
0: a blowout, but I think you got to stay with it to a degree. And, uh, your pick MJ or LeBron?
1: Well, they're different because their bodies are different, but um, uh, you know, all the championships that Michael won, I don't think we had
2: seen a player like Michael do what he did athletically until he came along. And
1: then in his wake, we've seen Kobe and we've seen LeBron. And they're basically doing, you know, they, they took the cue from Michael. But before Michael... You know, we had Dr. J and we had some players like that. There were athletic players, but no one had done what Michael had done before him. And so what he did is he kind of let the genie out of the bottle. You know, both players, both LeBron and Kobe have said that that was their idol growing up. And, uh, among others, like Magic Johnson and, and uh, and so many great Dr. J, like I mentioned, and other great players. So, um, You know, it just, uh, it's hard to say that the first version of what you've seen or what you've experienced isn't pretty indelible and wouldn't rank up there. I do think that, I would say this, that both of those players are in my top four of all time, and uh, we've had some great players in the NBA, but I would say that for sure, I would put those two in my top four.
0: Who are your other two? Well, that's when you kind of get into a discussion with
1: some people. Um, I guess for me personally, uh, I could go several different ways, but uh, when I talk to the people that have played, Hall of Famers that have played, they've kind of told me that that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Bill Russell probably should be in that conversation on that, on um, that one line, so to speak, and, and um I can't disagree. People I think we're looking at me and say, Bill Russell? Well people don't realise how great Russell was, or they don't realize how great Oscar Robertson was. Because they played so long ago and they weren't on T V every game. But they won championships. Uh, Russell in particular, obviously, with this nine and eleven years or whatever his streak was, and he just he just did things you know, that were just, you know, incredible people. So what about Will Chamberlain? Well, Will Chamberlain,
0: I think, won two. One with the Lakers, and one with the Warriors. Late in his career, but then, I was, believe, yeah.
1: With, yeah so so, I, so I, I don't, you know, he was great, and he was physically so different than anything we had ever seen, so physically different than even Russell. But Russell beat him all the time. Russell beat him all the time. So, um, you know, I don't think you can, Say a top ten without including Wilt. I don't think you can have a top ten without including Kobe Bryant. Uh, there's got to be Tim Duncan, I think, in the top ten. I mean, you know, like I'm saying, I mean, you're you're, you're dealing with uh, different eras and different styles, but I think that at the same time there was a dominance each of those players had that was undeniable, and that that's what makes them so incredibly. You know, part of that, that fabric of, you know, the top 10, top
0: 5, but my top 4, I would definitely include LeBron and Michael. See, I always get into this argument with, my. I'm a huge Jordan fan, and there's no way to re- we're ever going to uh, come up with who's better, LeBron or Michael. Because the 3-point shot wasn't that valuable early in Michael's career. So if he had to develop that, he might have scored 40 or 50 a game. Well, that, that's, a, that's a very true comment. It was,
1: it was a different game. Than, it was not a free-flowing game. Michael played in the area of the, the bad boys from Detroit. New York Knick teams, and they would slow the pace down. He'd play in this, in this time in, in NBA basketball. My gosh, who knows how much he would score. So he, he kind of crossed over and was able to play a little bit in what we see now. But the body of his work was in a time when basketball, uh, the NBA style of basketball, was still pretty pundersome. And, and, and same with when Russell played and, and all those great players played. Elijah Wan and everybody else. So I, I, I disagree. I, I agree with you. That, that That makes it very difficult to begin to find a compass on which way to point. But I guess with the eye test and just what you see, that um you know LeBron right now, when all is said and done, he's played in all these finals and a lot of times he did not have the talent around him that Jordan had. They've both been the dominant player on their team. But when all is said and done with LeBron, his statistics are gonna be just, you know, jaw dropping. Where he ranks historically and assists and rebounds and scoring and everything else on top of the championships he's won. Uh, which now are three, and, and how many finals he's been in, and consecutive finals. You know, he's played with all those consecutive finals at Miami, and then the last two in Cleveland. So, I mean, the guy is, he's, he's, he's
0: just almost as remarkable as Jordan is. So, I hard to distinguish him. I just know they're in that first line for me. All right, I don't want to take any more of your time. I know how much work you put in, and you're, you need to save your voice. But uh, we got coming up this week, if you want to talk about anything? Uh, all NDL, oh, okay. New Orleans, so I'll be uh,
1: I'll be going down there uh, middle of the week, and and uh, I've I've only got one duty, and that's a very simple duty, and that's on Saturday night, the uh, long distance uh, shooting contest, then the bowl skills contest, and of course the slam
2: dunk. So I'll do all that, and uh, and then get ready to finish
1: off the last uh, handful of weeks of the NBA season. We're about A month or less away from the beginning of the playoffs, and
0: that's when it really gets fun. Definitely, definitely. Kevin, thank you so much for all this time. I really appreciate it. You
2: got it, Kevin. Always a pleasure. Good to visit
0: with you. Thank you for asking. Same. Oh, anytime. I'd love to have you on again.
1: Take care. Thank
0: you. You too.